Romans chapter 12, let's begin reading this morning in verse 9. And this, just, just for a little bit of a, a kind of a recap on where we've been over the last few weeks. Romans 12, 1 and 2, our commitment to God. Okay, give yourself to God in light of what he has done for you. And then from verses 3 through 8, our commitment to each other in the body of Christ. That God in his mercy has bestowed gifts upon the church, uh, capacities upon individuals in the church, so that we can effectively serve each other. So we relate to God on this level. That relationship with God impacts our lives so that we begin to work things out on the horizontal level in relationships. Okay, so last time we talked about the idea of commitment to the body of Christ. This week, I want to spend our time looking at verses 9 and following, looking at the, the attitude that is vital to a healthy church. And to do that, I want to I give you an analogy that relates to our human body. All right? Every living human body has a system that is called the circulatory system. All right? It basically involves your lungs, your heart, and then all the veins, arteries, vessels, etc. that carry nutrients throughout your body. All right? And the question I want you to ask this morning is this. What is the job of the circulatory system? Okay, I'll just read you this brief description of it. On average, your body has about five liters of blood that continually travels through it by way of the circulatory system. The heart, the lungs, the blood vessels all work together to form a circle called the circulatory system. The pumping of the heart forces the blood on its journey. The circulatory system is responsible for transporting materials throughout the entire body. It transports nutrients, water, and oxygen to your billions of body cells. And it carries away waste such as carbon monoxide that body cells produce. It is an amazing highway that travels through your entire body, connecting all your body parts. Okay, so all those small pieces that make up who you are are kept alive by the circulatory system. So the result of that kind of description is this. The life and health of your body is totally dependent upon this system. All right, and without this system, body parts die and ultimately the body itself will cease to exist. So the circulatory system is a critical system to a healthy body. Without it, you can't live. Most of us don't, we don't think about that on a daily basis, but it's the truth. It's what keeps us alive. The question I want to ask you this morning is this, what is the lifeblood or the circulatory system of the church in terms of how it relates to itself? What is it that keeps the body alive, vibrant? Now, I'm going to say this. At one level, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, but the Holy Spirit is producing something within us by His presence that becomes the lifeblood of the church. And I would suggest to you this morning that the lifeblood of the church that Paul describes in Romans chapter 12 and verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, So in Christ, we who are many form one body. Okay, so we are the body of Christ. For that body to remain healthy and alive and vital and impactful, what needs to be present? What is the primary attitude and activity that needs to be present? And the beginning of verse 9 leads you into it, okay? Let love be 
sincere. Okay, love is the vital lifeblood of the church. And the Apostle Paul goes on to describe in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that all that we do in the body of Christ without love is like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It is simply an annoyance if it's not done with a heart to love and encourage and build up each other. So love is the, the lifeblood, the vital, important attitude that needs to govern our relationships in the body of Christ. This morning, I want us to look at this text. I want to look at verses 9, just going down through verse 13, at this idea of love must be sincere. If you were to follow from verse 9 down through verse 21, you would find that there are 12 to 13 descriptions of what this sincere love looks like. Okay, I'm taking this statement about let love be sincere as a summary statement. And then Paul goes, in a sense, in commentary to describe what sincere love looks like. All right, what it does. What are its fundamental and primary characteristics that need to be present in order for a church, for our church, for the chapel at Warren Valley, to be a healthy Christian body. Okay, and I want to say this. this the love that's described here, this sincere love is the agape love that the New Testament uses to talk about God's love for us. Okay, it is a love that has as its primary or essential characteristic, not affection or infatuation. Okay, it has as its fundamental characteristic, a selfless sacrifice. And that is an attitude that doesn't come to us naturally. Okay, that is an attitude that the Spirit of God prompts within us so that we then pour our lives out in service of those around us. All right, it, is a, it is a love that is characteristically free from selfish motives, isn't driven by what it gets, but is driven by what it desires to give. So probably the best verse in the New Testament to understand this love of God is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave. So I understand what love is by what it does. I understand the nature of love by what it does. God loved us so much that he gave. It is a love that is demonstrated most clearly on the cross. Romans 5, 8 in context says, God showed his love to us in this. Christ died for us. Romans 5, 5 says that this love of God is shed abroad in the life of believers. So we see it, and then once we participate in it by the gospel, it is shed abroad in our hearts. It, it, it flows into us by the work of the Spirit. So that in a relationship with each other, love should be the dominant affection, the dominant theme or characteristic, because it is vital. Jesus called love the new ethic of the church. He says to his disciples in John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give to you, and that is that you should love one another. Okay, so it is the, the vital lifeblood, the circulatory system of the body of Christ. And what I think Paul is doing in this text is rescuing love from somewhat of a, of a vague idea. Because we sing a song, right? Love is a many splendid thing, right? And, and it's kind of talking about love in kind of that very affectionate and feeling-oriented way. Paul is not going to talk about love in that kind of way. He's going to talk about love in terms of, the, of, of concrete expressions of it. Tangible, measurable understandings of this love. So 
We're going to work our way through verses 9 through 13, seeking to kind of get away from the vague idea of love as feeling, affection, and begin to look at love as commitment and choice to sacrifice for the benefit of others. So let's look through these verses, looking for the characteristics of love that should typify the body of Christ. Beginning of verse 9, let love be sincere. Now the idea that, that, that is used here in terms of love being sincere means this. It means let love be without a mask. Okay? What is Paul saying? Paul's saying don't turn life into a stage. Okay? And he, he's taking this from the, from the realm of theater. Don't let love be a show. Don't let it be, don't let the things you do be things you do to get to certain ends and means. Like to use it to accomplish the goals that you want to, want to accomplish. Okay, sometimes in marital relationships we can do this. All right, we know that our, our mate may be upset with us, so we start to act in ways that kind of draw them back. And we use this love behind a mask to get what we want out of the relationship. All right, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, let love be sincere. Take away the mask. Be who you really are. Let love flow from the centrality of your heart. Let it be a genuine expression of who you are in Jesus Christ. So it's, it's not a love that is behind a mask. It is a love that is transparent. Now he's going to start unpacking this in the second half of verse 9. Here's what Paul says. The first characteristic of sincere love. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Okay, so the first characteristic of genuine love in this text is that it is discerning. Or it is discerning. It, it has an aversion or an abhorrence or it detests anything that damages the relationships. The Apostle Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22. He said, Timothy, flee from youthful lust. We find an example of that in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, don't we? When he's tempted by Potiphar's wife, he's seduced sexually. And what does he do? He says, I can't do this and sin against God. And what does he do? He runs from the situation. He has a hatred of evil because he has a love for God. A sincere love. And I think you could say this about Timothy's encouragement from Paul. I think you could say this about Joseph's love for God. It was a love that was fierce. It, it was a love that was characterized by a hatred of some things and an embracing of other things. All right? If I said to you, there is something that my wife hates, okay? Some of you might find that strange because if you know my wife personally, you know that my wife is a very loving person. But there is something that has come into our world in the last, I would say, five to seven years that my wife hates. And uh, most of you probably have them visit your home as well, okay? They're called stink bugs, okay? My wife abhors them, okay? Um, she has no tolerance for them. She doesn't play with them, all right? I'll confess, when there's one walking on the table, I, if I love my wife, I would kill it. That's what I should do. I tend, to, I tend to like shoo them away, all right? I've never seen my wife do that. You know what my wife does with stink bugs? She crushes them. <laughs> Everything stops, and she goes after it that needs to be out of here, needs to be dead. And I'm telling you, when she, there isn't one that has ever survived her grip, okay? It's not pretty. She 
annihilates it. Okay? What does she do? When she, she, she doesn't sit there and say, I'm going to choose to hate that thing, and now I'm going to go get a tissue and kill it. All right? She doesn't even think about it. It's instinctive. All right? She doesn't want them around. All right? What is Paul saying when he says that we should abhor what is evil and cling to what is good? You know what he's saying? Have such an aversion, an abhorrence, a hatred, a detesting of sin that it can never find a place in our lives and in the church. It is a strong aversion that Paul talks about here that isn't simply understood in the negative though, right? Because what he say? He says abhor, hate what's evil, and cling to what's good. And the idea of clinging is the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 7 to talk about the marital relationship. It is a picture of a permanent bond in which a husband and wife own each other completely, are fully given to each other, adhere to each other. And Paul's saying this, genuine love, sincere love that is not hypocritical, it's real. What does it do? It hates what evil and it finds the things that are good and it adheres to them, a permanent bond. Being glued together. May God help us as a church family. To have a tenacious commitment. To that which is morally right. To to be people that pursue that which is good. That's what love does. It seeks the best things. Because it knows that those best things affect every relationship in our lives. The result is that we don't play with sin. We don't tolerate sin. We kill sin. And we pursue things that are good. We understand that sin is like plaque that builds up in the veins of the circulatory system. And if it is not gotten rid of, it will eventually snuff out life and kill. True love is discerning of anything that would contaminate and violate the body of Christ. And in love, it goes and deals with it for the glory of God. All right, so this love is not directionless. It's not... It just came over me like a wave and it took control of my life and everything. No, it's, it's a discerning, decision-making love that is constantly on guard for things that would negatively affect the body of Christ and is constantly encouraging things that would help the body of Christ. Okay? Rejects what's evil, clings to what's good. Okay? It is a discerning love. Secondly, verse 10 says this. It says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Okay? Be devoted. So here's, here's the second word they're going to give you. It is discerning, but true biblical love, sincere love, is also devoted. All right? It is characterized by a deep commitment. And the context of verse 10 tells us that this is within the realm of the body of Christ. Two times the word the words one another are used, okay? And that's a common phrase throughout the New Testament that talks about body life, okay? He also uses the phrase, do it in brotherly love. And then in verse 13, he uses the idea of share with God's people, okay? So the, the, the context of these commands to be devoted is where? It's in the realm of the body of Christ. Now, that's not to exclude, exclude love for others outside of the church, But what does it say? It says that we are to be devoted to brotherly love in the context of our church life. And there's two ways that this devotion, this commitment is worked out. Paul talks about mutual affection and he talks about mutual honor in verse 10. 
He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. What is brotherly love? Okay, it, it is love for a sibling. Okay, like, and I mean that really. Okay, it's, it's family love. It's not, family love isn't something you should have to teach. Okay, it's innate. Okay, somebody didn't have to say to Johnny Master after, after she had baby Willow, they didn't have to say, now Johnny, here's what you need to do. You need to love this child. Because we're sensing that you don't love this child. That you're not attracted to this child. That there's no affection for this child. No. Because that child was born into that family. What's the natural thing? Apart from our sinfulness, what's the natural thing? The natural thing is for a mom to love and to nourish and to feed and to care for a child. All right, same thing is true with our children, isn't it? There, there should be something about the love and affection that our children have for each other that, that, is, that is arising naturally. But because of sin, what do we often see? We often see conflict, right? So this text, what is Paul? Paul's saying be devoted to one another in brotherly love, in the, in, in the love that occurs naturally in the context of family. And that's the way we ought to relate to each other in the body of Christ. It's like when, you, when your children argue, what do you say? That's your sister. I mean, give me a break. You should love her. Right? And your kids look at you like, what are you talking about? Because okay. they haven't quite gotten this idea of, 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 but when something happens at school, right? Those siblings that may be at each other's throat at home, you know, somebody messes with their sister, messes with their brother, there's something innate that rises up. Okay, and this, what is Paul saying? He's saying be devoted to each other with that kind of innate love that is a result of being born by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ, your family. Okay, and there should be in, in our midst a natural affection that arises out of being bound together in the blood and love of Christ. So Ephesians 3.15, the Apostle Paul talks about the church. He says, you are the household of God. And what he means by that is this. There are obligations. There are affections. There is devotion that should be present in that relationship because you are God's family. Okay, and it's that direction that Paul's pushing us in here that we would understand that there is a, an intimacy that we exhibit towards each other and it should be the kind of intimacy and love that marks the best of earthly families. Okay, so that, that's what Paul's encouraging us towards. A love that, that when you look at a, at a family that you respect, you say, boy, those people really seem to love each other. I mean, like, really? Paul's saying that's what should mark the church, that there is a devotion. But then Paul, kind of in this devotion, also talks about this idea of mutual honor in verse 10. He says, honor one another above yourselves. The New Revised Standard Version says it this way. It says, try to, do, try to outdo each other in respect. Try to outdo each other. Outperform each other. In showing deference. And the idea of the word here is that it's the idea of deference. It's a, it's a preference for the benefit and blessing of others. I don't know if you ever go through this. When I, when I go to the, uh, to the mall or to a store, you always get in this struggle of who's going to hold the door with people. Okay, And sometimes it almost gets competitive. The way I do it at the Kohl's, you know, where Kohl's has two sets of doors, so if the person insists on opening the first door, what do you do? Uh, hopefully you do. Hopefully you don't stand aside and say, okay, wait till they get there and open the second door for me. Okay? Well, it's different. Deference is, uh, you know what? You get that. I, I, I rush ahead and I want to be there holding that door for them. It, it, 
what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, have this kind of mutual respect, this mutual desire to see each other growing. Have a, have a preference for one another, a mutual honor. And Jesus showed this deference for his disciples in John chapter 13. Here's what the Bible says. John 13 is the story of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And here's what he says to them. He said, when he had finished washing their feet, he put back on his robe and returned to his place. And his place was what? The head of the table. Okay, his place was the place of honor. And he says to his disciples, after leaving the place of honor, disrobing, washing their feet, doing the work of a servant, he says this to them. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you would do as I have done. Verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I, I'm your master, your Lord. I deferred to serve you. I put aside, the, the, what I could have demanded is that you wash my feet. But I didn't demand that. I deferred to you and washed your feet and left you an example that you would honor. But this is what love does. Love isn't jealous of the exaltation of others. Love seeks the exaltation and help and encouragement of others. We are to be devoted to each other. And brotherly love. So in Galatians 6.10, Paul would summarize this thought by saying this. Do good to all men, but especially do it to the household of faith. All right, and what's the call? The call is that as we see each other and as we're with each other and, and gather together, what should our heart be? Our heart should be, what needs do the people around me have that I can meet today? And as I go through the week, what are the needs that are present within the realm of my relationships in the body of Christ that I can meet and go after them and pursue them and meet them in a way that will truly honor and glorify God. So love is discerning, it is devoted. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. All right, what is this saying about love? All right, love should be enthusiastic. That's the idea here. Okay, it should be characterized by, by passion and zeal. Now, what happens? What happens is this. If Paul's saying, keep your spiritual fervor, keep your spiritual zeal, what tendency is he confronting in us? He's, tend he's, he's, he's confronting our tendency to become complacent, to become tired. Why? Because loving others is hard work when you love in this kind of a way. It'll wear you out. If you try to do it just through human will or emotion, choice, decision, it's not enough. Galatians 5.22 says this. It says the fruit of the Spirit, that is the evidence of a life that is walking with Him and being led by Him, you know what it is? First, it is love. Okay, so if I'm going to sacrificially give myself to others over and over and over again, but I'm doing it out of human initiative or will, what's going to happen? It's going to wear me out. If I'm not being refilled by the Spirit of God and relit by the Spirit of God, I'm going to find that my desire to love, each other, love others is going to fade. It's just, it's just what happens because love, biblical love, is hard work. So Paul says, don't let it 
wither. Don't let it become lazy and sluggish. And the second half of verse 11 is interesting because the text literally means something like this. Be aglow or be lit by the Holy Spirit. All right, so the idea is that this love that is sacrificial, that is devoted and discerning and prefers other people, where's it coming from? It's coming from the work of the Spirit of God, fanning into flame His gifts, His treasures that He's poured into our life so that it will then begin to flow out into the life of those around us. Be lit by the Spirit. And, and we, we say this sometimes. We'll say, you know what, that, that young person came back from that conference on fire for Christ. Okay, what do we mean? We mean the Spirit of God has begun to do a vital work in their life. And you can see it. And what is Paul saying? Don't try this on your own. Okay, by the Spirit, yield yourself to Him. And as you yield to Him, what happens? He, Ephesians 5, will begin to fill you so that you can sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as opposed to complaining and bickering and fighting with one another. Okay, so it is this work of the Spirit. And as you read through the book of Acts, here's what you'll find. You'll find that in the book of Acts, people that were committed to doing the will of God were consistently and continually filled with the Spirit. To do what? To do the work of God. To do hard things for the glory of God. That's why the Spirit of God comes. He comes to light us. He comes to ignite passion within us so that we don't have to work it up and make it happen. No, it's something that God is doing within us by the power of His Spirit. And you have to ask yourself, why would this reminder be present in this text? And the answer is this. Life is hard. Right? The circumstances of life will drain you of your energy. Here's what I believe. Any Christian who is devoted to doing the will of God, will experience what it is to be pursued by the evil one who will seek to deflate your passion for God, to snuff out the fire of God in your life. So if you're actively striving to be the person that God wants you to be, you're actively striving to serve others for the glory of God, you need to remember what Jesus said to Peter. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. 1 Peter 5, 7, your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to swallow down. I can tell you this, he is not interested in apathetic Christians. He doesn't have to derail them because they're not going anywhere. Who does he go after? He goes after you when you are seeking to do the will of God. And that's why sometimes we pull up and say, God, what, what's going on here? All right, and so we need to rest more deeply upon the work of the Spirit. So this enthusiastic love is not something that we work up. It is something that the Spirit of God produces in the life of surrendered believers, I believe, on a regular basis. And what is he doing? By the work of the Spirit, he, he is stirring up what I would call fickle affections. Okay? We have, we have affections that come and go, don't we? Our feelings, we, just, we ride through life and sometimes everything's great. And we, we go through, what does the Spirit of God do? He, he, he stirs up when we become apathetic. He fans the flame in our life. At, at the end of verse 11, Paul makes this curious three-word statement. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. But if I go back up to the first, well, verses three through six of this same chapter, who are we serving? 
We're serving each other, right? And in verse 10, who are we serving? One another, one another, and brothers, right? That's the idea. What what does Paul want us to remember? He wants us to remember that we should maintain our enthusiasm because in the service that we're providing to the body of Christ, we are serving him, Jesus Christ. So Jesus could say this, inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these, my brothers, what did you do? You did it to me. So folks, what should drive us in loving each other is a love for Christ. And it's almost like Paul puts it at the end of the statement. Stay enthusiastic. Keep the light of the fire of the Spirit alive in your heart because it is Christ that you are serving. The one who has done so much for us. The one that we love because he first loved us. And the key evidence in this text of the Spirit's presence is not astonishing things. The key evidence of the Spirit of God being present and working in people's lives according to this text is what? Loving, enthusiastic service to others. That fights against resistance, that fights against being pushed off the track of life, and that continues to love. Now what happens? Verse 12, I think, helps us to understand this a little bit further. He says, be joyful in hope, Patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. So this love for others that is enthusiastic and lit by the Spirit also needs to have another characteristic. And what's the characteristic that emerges here? I think the idea of the words here is it's the idea of persistence. Okay, that there there is a staying power to this. So Paul says, be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And these three kind of tie together, okay? In the midst, you find this idea of struggle and this call to be patient. Why? Because what are are we? We as the church are people of hope. We long for a brighter day that is coming. Paul says we don't look at the things that are seen. We look at the things that are unseen. We look at the good things that God is bringing in our direction. But as we pursue that ultimate hope, what happens? The path that goes to the place of hope is strewn with what? It's strewn with tribulations and trials. Struggles and difficulties. So in James chapter 2, what does James say? James says, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of what? Trials, troubles. Things that get thrown onto the road. That is the road to hope. But along that road to hope, what do we do? We wrestle. We're not free from the struggles of the world that we live in. And what happens? Our love can fade. And so what does the Apostle Paul encourage us to do here? He says, be patient in hope. That is this. Be mindful of what God is planning for you. Think about how this works. John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you. And when I go and prepare a place for you, it means one day I will come again and bring you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. What is that? That's Christian hope, right? That's what we look forward to. It's what draws us through John chapter 15 when Jesus says to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. And what do you find? Jesus ties together hope and trouble. Why? Because in the midst of these difficult circumstances, I need to keep my eye on the hope that is set before me. And this is what Paul is encouraging the church here to do. Be joyful in hope. Look forward. And then in your current affliction, be very patient. Bear up under. 
Because trials are producing what? James, two says, James 1 says this. Trials are producing staying power. The ability to stay on track in your walk with God when life gets hard. Not if it gets hard, but when it gets hard. And at the end of the verse, he says this. Be diligent, persistent, preoccupied with prayer. Now, what happens in life? In our prayer life especially. Here's what happens. When things are going good, what happens to your prayer life? Often. It subsides. It becomes weak. When trials come, what happens to your prayer life? It's like running to God's presence. Okay. It, 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 the troubles that God allows to come to us are blessings because they drive us into his presence. And they enable, when we're in God's presence, what does it do? It enables persistence. It enables a love towards one another that hangs in there when life is difficult, when it is hard. Sometimes we use this phrase. Hear people say this. I'm getting near the end of my rope or I'm at the end of my rope. What is this text saying? Right? I think this text is saying something like this. When you get near the end of your rope, tie a knot. Okay? And hang on. Because what do we struggle with? We, 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 we think we're going to fall off. And the knot that we're to tie on the end of the, our rope is what? It's the knot of prayer. It's where we say, God, I'm not going to let go of you. In the midst of this struggle, and in the, in the midst of this awkward situation where I'm, I'm having a hard time loving because I feel empty, I feel drained, trials have taken life out of me. What do I need? I need to get back into the presence of God and realize I'm not at the end of my rope. And what does he want from us? He wants us to be people that are faithful to the end, that are joyful, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. What does God want from us? He doesn't want stellar Christians. He doesn't want amazing people. He wants Christians that are devoted, who are enthusiastic by the Spirit, who persist in life in spite of the trials that come, who cling on to God, and who do that remembering that the moment I let go of Him, what is His promise? If you become faithless, Paul says to Timothy, I will remain faithful. I cannot deny myself. So what happens? Life pressures us. And our love fades. Paul says, come on, fan it in the flame. Endure in that love. Persist in that in spite of the afflictions and struggles that are around you. Because God desires that you be faithful. And then verse 13, he gives this final expression of love in this paragraph. He says, share with God's people who are in need. And practice hospitality. The last characteristic of love in this text is a very practical idea, isn't it? It's be generous. Be in your hold of things. Be loose. Okay, be willing to meet the needs of those around you. And not only people that you know, but people that you don't know. And the idea here is fascinating. He says, share with all God's people and practice hospitality. He doesn't say do hospitality. He says practice it. And the idea of the word practice here is, is the word pursue. It's go after opportunities. To make a difference in the lives of those around you. Now what happens? When love fades, we lose concern and care for other people. What often causes love to fade? The personal struggles and trials that we're going through. It, it tends to eat up our love. And what is Paul saying? Paul's saying to the church, come on, let the Spirit of God inflame you. Draw near to God in spite of the afflictions. And what is he going to do? He's going to give you a desire and a capacity to love those around you. 
Practice hospitality. Do good to your brothers in Christ. It is the way that we witness to the world around us of the difference that Jesus Christ is making in our lives. So what is the call? The call is to work out in your daily life in concrete acts the love that Jesus Christ has given to you. Let love be sincere. Let it be real. Work it out in daily life in concrete acts. Here's the way Jesus said it to his disciples. He said, don't love in words only, but love in deed and in truth. Galatians 6.10, do good to all men, but especially to those that are of the household of faith. Have a deep love and affection for those around you because that love that you practice is the circulatory system of the church. It's what allows us by the power of the Spirit to keep each other alive and vital in our walk with Christ. So I ask you this question this morning. How is your love life? Okay, how is your love life? Another way to think of this is, is, is like this. Who in the context of the body of Christ is depending on you? Okay, who are you keeping alive? Who are you taking vital lifeblood to in Christ? Okay, who is God using you to serve? And if, if, if you think about it, you say, you know what? I can't really think of someone that is depending on me, that, that, that I am vital to their walk with Christ. I want to encourage you, find people like that. All right, that you can have a vital relationship with. A relationship of sincere love. You don't have to have a mask. You don't have to act like you're happy when you're not. Where you can be real and genuine. Be yourself. Find that person that you can support and love. And remember that this love that is to characterize the church, this sincere love that is passionate, that's enthusiastic, that's persistent, that's faithful, that love is what catches the eye of a watching world. See, a lot of times we're talking about evangelism. We're struggling with what it looks like. Sometimes we need to learn to live out the gospel. Selfless love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that the watching world around us sees a vital picture of Jesus. And are drawn into his presence. So when they're in your midst, when they're with you, do they see something that is compelling and something that is fundamentally different? Because ultimately, service to men is service and witness for Christ. This is why it matters how we relate to each other in the body of Christ. Father, this morning as we contemplate this call to sincere love,